Right, if you have a Bible, let's turn to the book of Exodus and chapter 15. The last three months, we've been looking at this amazing book. It's kind of... It's a kind of a Hollywood blockbuster of a book. You know, not every book of the Bible feels like that. The, the, the books of the Bible really vary. Some of them feel a bit more like EastEnders or something, you know, or Hollyoaks, I don't know, but well, maybe not Hollyoaks, but maybe EastEnders. Um, whereas this is like, bow, bow, bow. It's absolutely epic. And it kind of undergirds the whole of the rest of the Bible. So it's, this, one, of the, it's like a, one of the biggest stories in the Bible. And what happens is, even hundreds of years later, when other bits of the Bible are written, they refer to this story. They talk about this story. It's like this amazing, amazing event that actually happened in the early history of Israel. That if you don't get, a lot of the rest of the Bible doesn't make sense because it refers to it. So it's so key. And, and, and some people would say, oh, the, this story, Exodus, it's all about Moses. I don't think it is primarily. Some people say it's all about Israel. And, and there's loads about Israel, clearly. But I don't think it's primarily about them. I think it's primarily about someone else. Who do you think that might be? It's about God. It's about God. About the fact that even before Jesus Christ physically came to earth, we see him throughout this story setting this normal bunch of men and women, Israel, there was nothing ultimately special about them apart from the privilege of them being chosen by God. It's about Jesus actually setting them free, but not just to sort of set them free so that they can then you know, wander around. The point of the thing is, it's, you see this picture over the 40 chapters. The end goal of the whole thing is not just, oh, we're free, nice, let's do our own thing. The whole point is that they would worship God. And I say that with passion because if you miss that, you will miss your primary call as a human being on planet Earth. You may just be kind of stumbling into church. You may think, I kind of create Your primary thing that you are designed to do now in this brief life and then for eternity is not to think about you, but to love, adore, worship, get excited about someone else. Hallelujah. That's why you're alive. That's why your heart's ticking. That's why you've got lungs that are going in and out. Put your hand on your pulse. Quick. Are you alive? Fantastic. Do you know your raison d'etre? We're church plotting into Lille, so it just seeps into our veins. Formidable. The reason you are alive, human, is to love him. And I've got the best news if you're not a Christian today. You might think being a Christian is about rules and religion and not smoking or something. Rubbish. It's about knowing your Father in heaven. <laughs> oh man, I haven't started and I'm exploding with joy because this is what it's about. It's not about Old Testament, serious, scary God, New Testament, happy. It's about Jesus throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about him. And the world will tell you joy and success are found in finding your inner self, finding your perfect husband, finding that perfect rubbish. Those are false things. Forget yourself. You're very normal, really normal. You're fragile, weak, pathetic. But you're more loved by the God of the universe than you could ever conceive. Now that, that's what this is about. And I want to say, guys, unless that is our true north as a church, unless he is our true first love, everything else, uncover days, giving money, praying, building projects, it's all a load of rubbish. 
if it doesn't come from a place of joy and love in our Father, tumbling into the things that we're called to do, not driven into the things because Tom told me to. And this is so good because what we see in this book is the fact that getting to that place of joy and him being our first love is a fight. Isn't that a relief? Hello? Isn't that a relief? Because we all are sitting here going, I kind of want to love him more. But I look at my life, I look at my passions, I look at, I'm just such a loser. Or maybe it's just me. We look at our life, I think, I I do love Jesus. I really do. I'm interested in this Christian God, but I I get so flustered by life and blustered. And things that shouldn't bother me, they do bother me. And life's hectic and domestic. And I see sin in my life and I thought I'd broke it. And I'd do it again. And this book deals with it. It says, guess what? God knows. And he wants to help lift us day by day by day, ever into a place where we're free. And this is the great bit. We're going to press pause after today and come back to this book next year because it's got a long book, so we're doing it in chunks. But the brilliant news is this, is whereas in the last 10 weeks or nine weeks or whatever it's been, we've been looking at the challenges that can hold us back from being worshippers. Today, guess what? There's no challenge. There's no failure in Israel that we can learn from. This is just an explosion of pure, magnificent, it's like a masterclass in worship. That's what we're about to read. It's when Israel beautifully, in this moment, get it so right. And then we're going to come back and sing our hearts out and actually do what they did. So let's read together. Chapter 15, verse 1. The context is worth mentioning. Chapter 14, life was great because they'd been set free and they're like, yay, we're free after decades of being in slavery. And then suddenly everything went wrong. Maybe that's your life right now. Maybe life's been great and then suddenly your job's a mare. Suddenly your neighbors are an absolute. Your health. You've got a young child and you're like, yeah, oh my word. I can't even, I never sleep anymore. Maybe your family members were great and then suddenly they're just, whatever it is, the previous chapter is an echo of it. It says life can be great and then God allows them once set free suddenly to be hemmed in. They were hemmed in between the sea and between a terrifying raging army. So no matter, not to diminish your your issues, probably they're not quite as life-threatening as that at least. But this is the deal, is that God breathtakingly took them to the edge of their limits. And then the 11th hour, he opened the Red Sea. They walked through as God literally opened a Red Sea. It actually happened. Two million Israelites walked through. Come on, kids. This is crazy, but let's just follow God. Through they go. And then Pharaoh and his army try to follow. You know what happened? God who's God just goes, yeah, end of story for you. The waters close. That's just, that's just what's just happened. How do they respond? Look at this. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang. They sang this song. What is to sing? Singing is to make a musical sound with your voice. I know, we're into high theology here. Can everyone just check? I just want to check that everyone knows what that is. This is a C, okay? Ah, uh, I'm just bluffing that one, but can you just sing back to me in Canterbury, you ready? One, two, three. Oh. Very good. In Whitstable, one, two, three. Why? Better than Canterbury, fantastic. They sang. 
They made a musical sound with their voice. This is profound. They may not have done that. They didn't have to have done that. They chose to sing. What will we be doing as Christians in heaven? Quite a lot of singing. They sang. They sang. And look at this. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang. I love that. It wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just the leader sang and everyone else left him on his own, the enthusiast. It wasn't just Moses got into mission, got into giving, got into praying, and the rest of the church was like, well, good luck, mate. Good luck, leaders. Bye. Moses and the people. It's a culture. It's a culture of them. Hundreds of thousands of them lifted their voice. What a picture. And this is what they sang. And I, I won't literally sing it. I did toy with the idea, but I don't want to inflict that upon you. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. And the deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill in them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But Lord, you blew. You blew with your wind. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth just swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the, the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror, dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, whom you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. There are three stunning ingredients here that I just want to pull out this morning before we, before we respond and we do what they did and we sing our hearts out. There are three things that I think help us to understand how they actually did this amazing moment of worship. The first of them is this, the focus. If you notice here, the focus of this worship song was all about him. Did you notice that? The focus was all on him. Look, it says, for the Lord, 
He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and he has become my salvation. This worship is all about him. And you, th- you think, I know, but, but let that sink in. It is all about him. You see, what's really fascinating, and I hadn't spotted this until I looked at this, was that what this is technically, it's, it's a victory song. So in the time in which it was written, lots of you know, pagan nations had their equivalents. Songs that were sung when you won a victory. So when your king, your leader, your hero led your nation to destroy someone else, you sang a victory song. That's what you did. And the song was all about your leader. It was all about how great he was, how amazing he was, how fantastic your human leader, your king, your warrior who was. And what's so fascinating about this is their leader, humanly Moses, he is not mentioned even once. It is breathtaking. Even though in the previous chapter, right at the end of it, after Moses had led the people so well into overcoming, it says this, it says, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's the end of the last chapter. The very last thing. They believed in him. And what does culture say? Well, culture says, therefore, you sing about your leader. You sing about Moses. You give him thanks. You give him the worth. He's led us brilliantly. That's not what they do. It's not that it's just not about them, which a lot of Christian songs are. It's not even about their amazing leader. It's all about God. Now, in an age which is contaminated at an epidemic level with what Andrew Wilson, the preacher, calls individualitis. That's not a real disease, by the way. It just means that everything's about me. iPhone. iPad. iPod. Little hint there. We genuinely get contaminated with that as Christians. And the scary thing is, if you... If your worship is not ultimately eyes off my own emotions and it's all about him, there is actually only one other alternative. There aren't lots of greys. There is black and white. The only other alternative is it's ultimately driven by how you feel. I will sing because I feel happy. That's not worship. That's singing because you feel happy. (laughs) That's what the world does. Do you understand? And we can think that's what my worship, that's not worship. Worship is totally different to singing because you feel happy. Although God likes that. He loves you to bits. Worship is when it's focused on him. When it is actually focused on the object of eternity, which is God himself. You see, if it's focused on how we feel and the things of this life, ultimately, they are like sinking sand. They will temporarily, sometimes when you feel great, cause you to sit near the front and put your hands in the air. But the ultimate thing that is always actually worthy of worship is a human fixing the eyes of his heart on God, who is stunningly merciful, perfect in his character, everlastingly kind, always wanting to forgive, a father like no other. You see, worship that we see here, which is all focused on who God is, on who Jesus Christ is. That's why, as I've said recently again and again, we don't primarily as an eldership ask ourselves when we think about this church, what, does, what do people want? What do people want in church? How can we make the things of the church really good? So people, 
Those are valid questions to a measure. The big thing we ask is, what does the Father want for his church? And what he wants is a people who are absolutely red-hot passionate, vocally and internally, about his Son. So whenever we gather, big or small, the one thing we always do through word or through music is to say, Father, it's all about him. As Jeff brilliantly preached a few weeks ago, in heaven, it will not be about you or me. And in fact, even right now, it's not about you or me. It says in the Psalms, his name will be remembered throughout all generations. Oh, I love that. His name. And that's not to me, I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm preaching this to myself. But it is what a loving father does to help understand, the church family understand, oh, in, in a culture which is just pumping to us, even in the Christian world, sing songs which are kind of, I'm going to be really good for you. I'm going to go on mission. Now, those songs have a kind of place, they're response songs. But the heart of worship is not about me. It is about who he is. Do you understand that? It's coming and saying, I feel terrible. I feel depressed, Tom. I feel filled with worry about my work this week. But ultimately, am I just going to sing a song when I feel like it? Or am I coming to engage in a sacred activity that all of heaven will be about, which is singing about who he is? Does he ever change? Does he ever have a part to him that is not utterly mind-blowingly amazing. That means if a human can get their eyes of their hearts around that aspect, then it will always readjust our perspective from getting sucked into this world again and again. Worshipping people is focused on him. When Terry Virgo, who's led the family of churches, a thousand churches across the world over 40 years, someone said to him, so many other movement leaders have come and gone. What is your secret? Quick as a flash, he said, I'm a worshipper. That's who I am. Whether things are going great or things are, I'm a worshipper. I'm a worshipper. And I want that for us. I want it to be our DNA. It's not just that we generally like to sing songs, but we are those who understand it. Because, guys, the more that we do that, the more God's presence changes everything. Smith Migglesworth, he was a man from the early part of the 20th century. He was a plumber from Yorkshire. That's a bad accent, sorry. From Yorkshire, but he was someone who moved in tremendous power, saw thousands of people healed and saved. But the thing I love about him was his intimacy with God. The focus was not on Smith Wigglesworth. It was on God. It was on God. And it meant that when he prayed in a prayer meeting, frequently when he prayed, the weighty presence of God would come in such measure People left. Christians couldn't cope with that level of nearness of the Holy God. And there was one Pentecostal New Zealand pastor called Harry True. And Harry True had heard about this and he said, If I ever get the chance to pray with Smith Wigglesworth, I, no matter whatever happens to everyone else, I will hang on in there. In fact, I'm going to stand right next to this man. Well, guess what? In 1922, he got his chance. He, uh, 
he was, uh, Smith Wigglesworth was in New Zealand doing, uh, touring the country. And uh, there was a prayer meeting where this Pentecostal uh, preacher, uh, Harry Tree, was there. And it says this. It says, a number prayed of other people. But then the old saint began to lift up his voice. And as strange as it may seem, the exodus began. A divine influence began to fill the place. The room became holy. The power of God began to feel like a heavy weight. And with a set chin and a definite decision not to budge, the only one now left in the room hung on and hung on under the pressure until the pressure became too great and he could stay no longer. With the floodgates of his soul pouring out a stream of tears and with uncontrollable sobbing, he had to get out or die. And a man who knew God as few do was left alone, immersed in an atmosphere that few men could breathe in. Ever been to a prayer meeting like that? I want to, I want that for our church. We are so lied to, not just by the world, but even by the apathy of the church in this in this nation, that we can think, yeah, I do my churchy thing and I come and sit on a blue chair and ah, oh, and we get satisfied with such scraps when worship that is about God, where God comes, that's what we are dreaming and praying for. That's, that's really the carrot that we see throughout the book of Exodus, that they understood God's here. We want that, Lord. We pray even now that you will in these days, you will come more than we could ask or imagine in ways that are uncomfortable because of the intensity of your presence. We, we humbly ask, Holy Father, that you will come and fill us and flood us and change us. Lord, as we, we come and we just kind of come with our hands in our pockets to worship at times, we just kind of skate in Please forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our flippancy. Come, Lord. Come and show us that we're like children at times in the, in the shallows. And you love us dearly. But Lord, you want to take us so much deeper. Lord, we sign up in our hearts today. Afresh, at the start of this academic year, we sign up to all that you would graciously grant us. We, we dare to pray, God, we dare to pray that you would come. We pray it, God, that you will set this church ablaze. We pray for every church in, in this city and in this city district. We pray, God, where Canterbury is known as the place where revival first came hundreds of years ago, where Augustine came and, Lord God, Thousands were baptized in two years. We pray, God, let your power come again. Let your power come as we lift up your son. Let the spirit of God come. God, come and change our hearts. Come and rid us of fleshiness at times and fuss with the pure, scary, glorious work of the spirit. 
who was given that we would be convicted of sin, righteousness and judgment. Lord, come, send your spirit upon us. Let us be those who don't just worship in truth, but in spirit as well. Holy God, we recognize, Lord, this is your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The focus was all on him. But just secondarily, I'm going to finish with this. I won't get to my third point. I'll leave you hanging. The focus wasn't just on him. It was what I've called, it was deliberately detailed. Did you spot that? It wasn't just generally about God. It was deliberately detailed. You see, if you're anything like me, when, when I'm facing a challenge, small or big, and God pulls me through it one way or the other, which is always how he works, even if the outcome's not actually what I thought I wanted or you know what I mean? He always gets us through it. Always. Always, always, always. I often forget quickly. And I bet you do too. I tend not to. I'm quick to focus on the next worry, the next thing, the next thing. And I, and I can often forget. Time, time's, but life's busy, isn't it? And we have a billion media messages. We have a billion meetings. And that can subtly kill a heart of worship. It's re- Listen, this is really important. Because what they do is they give God time. They don't rush it. They are deliberately detailed in allowing God's rich character and action and kindness to be savoured. There's a poetic heart in this people. They're not about business and efficiency. There's the heart of a poet in this people. They use poetic language, but it's red hot in its accuracy about who God is and what he's done. Did you spot that? It's, it's this overflowing of, it's like they just, you know, think about this. God's just talk, brought them through this unbelievable thing. Many of us would be like, right, well, we've got to crack on. We've got to get to the promised land. We've got to, you know, God's dealt with the Pharaoh. It's brilliant, right? But come on, hey, yeah, let's, let's form sub-teams. Okay, sub-team number one. They don't do that. They don't form a system at this moment. That comes a little bit later. What they do is they deliberately are detailed in allowing God to reveal what's just happened. It says things like, they say, I'll sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has triumphed gloriously. That he hasn't just triumphed, it's a glorious triumph. You see, the Hebrew behind those two words is often used negatively about when, when pride rides up in a king negatively. It's the idea of kind of a wave coming up. But here it's used beautifully, positively. It's rich. He has like a wave. God has risen up. 
and he's triumphed gloriously. Who would have ever <laughs> said to them, by the way, what's going to happen is God's going to get you right near a big red sea and then there's going to be thousands of scary people who are going to try and kill you and then he's going to open the sea and then you're going to go through and then he's going to collect. No one would have said that's what's going to happen. He's already done amazing things. They're saying there's a triumph that is glorious. Do you understand that? That there's a, there's a detail in their understanding of God that is fueling this worship. See, Christian, Christians at this time, you have to understand the times, one of the big things we battle is a fuzzy theology thing. Is that we can be content with a fuzzy view of God and songs that are just kind of like, just fuzzy. Do you know what I'm saying? And they're just kind of, there's no clarity. There's no teeth. There's no theology. And when your life is falling apart, you need theology. You don't need to just, a fuzzy wuzzy wuzzy. You need to just, God, you're good. And you are sovereign. And I was once in Adam's helpless race, and now I'm in Christ's. And this life is dark and hard, but your word says that there is a better place, and you're making all things new, and it's not a fairy tale like Father Christmas. It's real because the resurrection, which historically happened. There you go, that's a song for us. Someone write that into a song. Do you see what I'm saying? We put so much energy into our work and into our, how do I parent? And how do I do my budgeting? And how do this? And we can be like infants when it comes to theology about God. And singing is always been, church history is rooted and flooded with history about songs which are meaty. And we live in an age which rejects that. And we have to understand that's a subtle, destructive trend. It is really dangerous. If a whole generation who are out there learning our under-18s, if they're learning just fuzzy-wuzzy songs, that's when their life goes wrong. They're not going to have songs that will get them through it. And that's why we sing cool songs when they're good. And we sing uncool songs if they've got God all over them. And if you want a church which is just all the latest things, no matter what they're like, go somewhere else. Because we believe that truth, when we sing in a moment... We're not just singing nice melodies. It's a sacred thing where we're saying, These, God's given us song so that I can remember it in the middle of the night when I'm up and I can't sleep. But that song, it's all about you. Do you see what I'm saying? And I get so fearful for the church of this nation. And I praise God for songwriters who actually know it has to be detailed. Of course, there's songs that are simple. I'm not saying complicated, but detail is different. That know our God, the Christian God. So many Christian gods, Christian songs, they could be sung about other gods of other religions. The Jesus of the Bible hung on a cross. No other God's done that. And these guys, they're, they're like kids who've just come back from a fireworks display for the first time. They can't get over it. They're not saying, thanks God, that was good. You've triumphed gloriously. The biggest superpower in the world has just been swallowed up in an ocean because of your love for me. That's bonkers. That changes things. That isn't normal. That's crazy town. That's what happened to them. And they sang, millions of them, at the top of their voices. It's beautiful. And they allowed poetic language to stir the theology of God. 
he goes on, meditate on it in your own time. There's just too much here. Verse three, the Lord is a Lord of war. Do you know when people, do you know early, early Bible translators, when they were translating this Hebrew, that bit, they changed it. Do you know that? They didn't like the idea of a God of war. They changed it subtly to the Lord. When they changed it from Hebrew to Greek, they, were, they said, the Lord is a God who crushes war. That's a bit sneaky. It's kind of true. It's not actually what it says. He is a God of war. And what I'm saying is his heart breaks, don't get me wrong, when the wars of this world happen. I believe that. But there is a, a warrior. There is a warrior in God. He hates injustice. He's furious against sin. His blood boils when people are abused. He's not a fuzzy, recycling, long-haired hippie. He is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. And he's on your side if you're a Christian and he loves you. And if you don't know Christ, you need to throw yourself at his mercy and say, Lord, forgive me and I place all my trust and faith in Jesus. And you could sit here today and you might be like me. I bet when you read this, you can think, well, do you know what, Tom? If I went through what they went through, (laughs) I'd be pretty happy. I'd probably sing a lot. Anyone here think that in your heart? You think, well, you know what I mean? I haven't had a Red Sea opening, Tom. That hasn't happened to me, and that's why I can be a bit floppy in my worship. They've had an amazing thing happen to them. And then you remember the gospel. The gospel. That makes this look like barely a warm-up. What's the gospel? The gospel's this. God didn't open a Red Sea. How much did that cost God? Nothing. Didn't break into a sweat. There it is. It's done. Whole army gone. When Jesus came to earth, Christians believe that was God. Not appointed God as a baby. Year upon year in obscurity. Fully human. Then gathering followers who then in their turn rejected him, betrayed him. Having moments of great adulation and then at the cross being the loneliest man on planet earth. And even saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? You see, as much as this is amazing, guys, this side of the cross... The fact that God hung naked on a cross, taking the full wrath of God for my sin and your sin. The fact that he then came back from the dead. You see, you can see the gospel throughout this. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Lord, when you went to the cross. You kicked Satan in the teeth. You smashed my sin. You defeated my shame. All the things I've done wrong were placed on him. And you killed that enemy. You killed the lies of the enemy who tries to say, Tom, you're going to go to hell. You defeated that enemy in the greatness of your power, verse 7. The greatness of your majesty. You overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. 
You send out your fury. God sent out his fury. Not just on the, the Egyptians. He sent out his fury on his son. That's 10,000 times greater than what we've just read. And he did it for you. He sent out his fury on his boy so that every human could have a chance to be forgiven. Hallelujah. He sent it out. It consumed him. It says it consumed the stuff. It consumed Jesus. He was bathed in the wrath, the righteous wrath of God for my sin and your sin. The enemy said, Satan said, I'm going to win. I'm winning at the cross when he saw Jesus dying, <gasps> suffocating, <gasps> bleeding, mocked. The enemy said, I'm winning. Just as Pharaoh thought. And verse 10, and then you blew. And then you blew with your wind. And then God sent the Spirit of God that raised his son back from the dead. Proving the unthinkable had happened. Which is a way had been made, not through a Red Sea, but through your sin and your darkness. And through this terrifying world, this world that's godless. A way was made, not a Red Sea, but a way through his son. Hallelujah. I think that's more amazing than water being parted. Any parent here, anyone with a heartbeat, which is all of us, any of us who would ever even want you, the idea of a father sending his son to die, I'll never get over that. I will be preaching that to the day I die, just to warn you. Because I can't get it when I think of my girls. I could never touch them in any way. I could never allow anything to happen to them. And this father that we worship and the son together said, let's do this. For you and for me. And that's a detail that we delight in. That fuels you through your darkest times. and means that every time we come, we can worship. Because you see, the danger is you can be those who go, when God brings me victory, what can I think of this week? How's God blessed me this week? Well, it's been sunny. Oh, thank you, God, it's been sunny. What happens when it's rainy? God, thank you that, you know, um, I got that new job. What happens when your job's horrendous? If our fundamental engine for worship is on blessing small b rather than the blesser capital B, then ultimately... We will be fragile. We'll be like a little child tossed to and fro. And that's not God's desire for us. Let's stand to our feet. Let's, let's engage in what we've been anticipating. Rob and the band are going to lead us. What I want us to do is read this verse. Read this, these 18 verses again. And then we're going to worship. Are you guys up for that? You up for that? his authoritative word if we could have those words back up that we read the verses we're going to read them and then we're going to sing to our wonderful king let's go one two three then Moses and the people of Israel sang these songs to the Lord saying I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider 
He is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deep congealed. 